This is Matt Ward of The Weigh-In, your home for combat sports. I am joined by boxing writer and historian Gene Pantalone. Gene, thank you for joining me this morning. No problem. Pleasure. Let's begin by discussing your new book, From Boxing Ring to Battlefield, The Life of War Hero Lou Jenkins. First off, what inspired you to write this book? Well, as you know, and maybe not some of the readers, but my, my, uh, another book I wrote on boxing called Madame Bay's Home to Boxing Legends is where I discovered Lou Jenkins. And the first time I came across him was there was a fighter at Madame Bay's, which is located in Chatham Township, New Jersey, uh, by the name of Lou Ambers, who was the lightweight champion at the time. And he was training up there for Lou Jenkins. So that was the first time I really started looking into his life. And he he also was, uh, he also trained at Madame Bay's too. So I included that in my, uh, in my, in my first book. So there's some passages about Lou Jenkins in the first book. And what I discovered was, is I discovered at first glance, I should say, the first impression of Lou Jenkins was he was in so much trouble with boxing commissions with his antics, mm-hmm. his drunkenness, both inside the ring and outside the ring. He would fight drunk. He would drink before matches, and he would ride motorcycles before <laughs> before uh, his his uh, his bouts, and he would get into motorcycle accidents, and wow. he would fight with bruises, broken bones. Uh, I'm I'm going to get into more of that later, but my first impression of him, which I kind of get mad at myself because. I didn't think highly of him when I first read right. all this stuff about him. It's probably something people should realize. You shouldn't judge somebody just by first impressions or what you read about them to begin with. you got to really delve into where they came from and what got them to where they were. So what I discovered was that he was, it was more from his upbringing the way he was, and he was, he was still a down-to-earth guy. Mm-hmm. And he, during his boxing career and after his boxing career, he fought in World War II and the Korean Wars. And uh, when I delved more into his life, I discovered that he was more than what he appeared to be at first glance. He was truly one of the most interesting characters in boxing, if not of all of sports. And when you think about today's bad boys in sports, mm-hmm. I, he had them all beat. <laughs> you know, I mean, what even he himself said, you had to see the way I fought to believe it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, but but this was a man who, through the military, turned his life around and became an exemplary man toward the end of his career in life. Wow. Really, with the exception of his military background, I'm, I think of, the way you're explaining him, I think of David Wells, the former baseball player, <laughs> sort of the motorcycle and the bad boy yeah. image goes. <laughs> yeah. Just really interesting that he, he's the first person that comes to mind. <laughs> I know nowadays, sometimes they write that into the contract, you will not do this, yeah. you will not do this. Yeah. <laughs> So, many boxing fans know Lou Jenkins as a former world's lightweight champion. Please tell us more about his rise to becoming the top man in the lightweight division. Yeah, you, you have to understand where Lou Jenkins came from. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he came from Depression Era, Texas, during the Dust Bowl. And the family was dirt poor. And he was one of seven children. And there's five girls in the family and two boys, and he was the oldest boy. Mm. And... He said that he only owned one pair of overalls. Wow. And they were so poor, he said, I don't know how we survived at the time. And he started fighting as a teenager. And the way he started fighting is they would match these locals up with Mexican kids, and they would fight in alleys. They would give the winner a pie. Oh, fight to eat. Fight to eat. And Lou always won his pie. <laughs> he, was, he was pretty good. Wow. So, but at the age of 15, his father died. Oh. So being the oldest son at 15, he was 
really the person that had to bring in the, the money. And what his father did, as a little, besides odds and ends jobs, he was really a cotton picker. Okay. So Lou Jenkins, he became a cotton picker. Right, right. And he, he would work the cotton fields. And he called it a miserable job. Uh, he would pick hundreds of pounds of cotton a day. And, uh, I mean, he would pick until his hands bled. And what he said was the burrs on the cotton would stick to your hands. And after a while, it would chaff and they would start bleeding. So it was, it was, it was a tough life. Uh, and during that time, he continued to fight. And he started becoming what they called a carny fighter back then. Mm -hmm. He would fight in carnivals and for major wages. And uh, there was this one main carnival that came through town one time called T.J. Tidwell, mm -hmm. which was named after the man. And uh, he saw how good Lou Jenkins was. He was beating his fighters you know, oh. that he was putting out there. And he hired him to be his carny fighter. And he would... He would match him against any challenger, mm -hmm. and uh, Lou, Lou, uh, Lou, Lou Jenkins said that he had so much faith in him that he would bet his whole carnival that he could beat anybody. <laughs> and these guys sometimes outweighed him by over a hundred pounds. But uh, Lou Jenkins had a shattering, thunderous right hand punch that could take out mostly anybody if he connected. Wow. So, so he was, he was, uh, like he said, he was so good that he, uh, T.J. Tidwell hired him, but the carnival soon folded mm -hmm. at that time. And so he went back to what he knew best. He started picking cotton again. So he started picking cotton, and at the age of 19, he joined the Texas Cavalry, mostly shoeing horses and mules. He was a good horse rider, I heard. Oh. And he loved horses. He was, they say he was practically brought up on a horse. So while he was in the Army, he, he would fight Army fights. They would always hold fights in the Army mm -hmm. between, you know, different probably companies or whatever. And uh, It's more like amateur fights. Yeah. They weren't held in the records. But during, during furloughs, he would actually fight professional bouts. Oh. Yeah. Was, and he would hop trains. <laughs> there was one interesting thing is he said he hopped a train to fight while he was in Texas. He hopped a train, fought in New Mexico, and rode back just in time for for revelry. Oh, so he wouldn't be considered AWOL. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one time, interesting story is one time, and this is what really started his his uh, professional career on track mm -hmm. is he was on furlough once in Dallas and there was a rich man by the name of Fred Browning who was there and he saw his he didn't pick his opponent out with that right hand of his and he actually uh, signed him to a professional contract wow and uh, just a little aside about uh, Browning is he owned a illegal casino at the time. Oh. That was that was that that uh, attracted both the famous and the infamous. <laughs> Go figure. <people> like yeah. <laughs> Ginger Rogers would be there, Benny Goodman, but you'd also have Bonnie and Clyde and uh, and uh, Benny Binion, who he partnered with. Uh, I mean, it was an elaborate place. They, I mean, when they when they got raided, they had. Like slide doors where the where the gaming would go into the walls and stuff, and they would have tunnels where the guests could run out. Wow! So they could escape. So, so he actually hired uh, signed him to a contract. He actually bought uh, built some building uh, boxing equipment for uh, him at his casino. Oh, so, so he could, he train, could there? train there. Wow! Right. So, uh, uh, during that same furlough is where he met his future wife mm -hmm. and it's just coincidence her name was Katie but her her last name was also Jenkins no relationship oh <laughs> that's good <laughs> yeah but Katie Jenkins was she was some woman for the time 1940s 
and her background, she was, she was actually the former girlfriend of Ray Hamilton, who was an outlaw at the time and was also part of the Bonnie and Clyde gang. Oh, so she ran around in the underworld. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you know. In fact, they arrested her once right before they raided his house where he escaped under a barrage of bullets. Oh, wow. He was, he was already one. He was already convicted for murder at the time, and he escaped and was accused of killing a, a guard during his, his escape. Wow. And he was, he was after her arrest, they, they released her for, you know, because she wasn't in, involved in the gang. But uh, they caught him soon after that incident, and she even visited right before they executed him. So he, she even tried to get the governor to grant a stay of execution, but of course he, he didn't do that. Mm -hmm. She was also a midget car driver, Katie Jenkins. In the in, in the, the circus? And we're, no, in the circuit. Oh. She would actually race midget cars in Dallas. Oh, I see. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and uh, I, th I think at that time... Uh, Lou found his girl. Yeah. <laughs> he found all that all about this stuff. He found his match. <laughs> yeah. She actually would train him and manage his fights, even though they would use other people's names because mm -hmm. they weren't allowed. Women weren't allowed in boxing rings, or and we're talking about late nineteen thirties. So, do you think she might have been one of the first female boxing trainers in in she the history of sport? She was actually the first licensed trainer in New York. In New York. No kidding. Right. Not That's fascinating. Actually, actually, it was after they had parted ways. The marriage didn't last. Mm -hmm. And she was training uh, another fighter by the name of Carmine Pata. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she was the first licensed trainer in New York. Wow. And she had to go through a lot because at the time, the commissioner, uh, General Phelan, said... Uh, a woman won't get a boxing license over my dead body. <laughs> but she won out. That's fascinating. She was a real pioneer in the sport she of women's was. boxing. Yeah. And for female. Yep. Wow. But like before that though, the they would they would they had this old jalopy that they logged over a hundred thousand miles and mm -hmm. and they would crisscross the US and Mexico just looking for fights. And sleeping mostly in their car or tourist cabins when they could find it. Wow. And they didn't have much money. They actually hocked their, her engagement ring and, and their wedding van just so they could buy food and gas. So uh, that, that's how he, he started. I mean, he, he said there was, there was hundreds of fights that weren't on his record that, he, oh, wow. that weren't recorded. And uh, Katie meticulously kept all the records. Did you have a chance to see the records? No, I, I haven't. I, I think the family may still have them, but I'm not sure. Yeah, you know. that'd be amazing. That would be, that would be a great find. I mean, not only for websites like Box Rack and some of these record keeping sites um, right. for the sport. Yeah. So eventually, Lou started to get better and better. Mm -hmm. You know. He, and eventually he improved so much that uh, he won the Texas Lightweight Championship back in the late 30s. Mm -hmm. And after that, Katie convinced her, convinced Lou to go to New York, try his skills out there. Oh, okay, so move back east, yeah. Yeah, so he, he, uh, yeah, he, he, they went to New York to see if they could make some money. He, he said he just wanted to go to the World's Fair there at the time, see the Empire State Building, and, and just make make a little money to um, on his boxing to live. Yeah, yeah. But it, it turned out differently. Yeah. So he 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 started getting uh, fights there. His you know Browning was still his manager, but he got a manager in New York to uh, to to service some. His uh, name was Bachman, and uh, so he, he got him a few fights. I think one of the first New York fights, he was a man by the name of Quentin Baby Brees, 
that uh, he beat at the time, but a lot of people thought he didn't beat him. And Katie Jenkins was at ringside. And people thought the judges were looking more at Katie than they were at the boxing match. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and somebody even wrote at the, in the papers that, you know, it's not a bad idea to look at Katie, but they, sh they should have been looking at the match. Yeah, I'd like to read the, uh, the recap from some of those boxing writers. <laughs> but, of course, he, he, he won his first fight in uh, New York. And after that, he kept getting another one, and the opponents kept getting harder and harder, and he just kept beating them one after another. And... Uh, they didn't, they didn't like their manager, this guy by the name of Bachman. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they, Browning told them, well, because they were ready to go back home to Texas. So they uh, said, I mean, you know, Bachman, I'm sorry, Browning told them, I got this guy, Howling Jaime Kaplan. Mm -hmm. And he was called Howling because he always spoke at a high-pitched tenor voice. <laughs> he could be... He could yell, out yell anybody in from the corner of the ring, so he hired him, and uh, he Kaplan was already a well known, well man uh, manager. He had uh, he had uh, uh, managed four champions already: Ben Jebby, Lou Salica, Sally Krieger. And Al Singer. That's quite the list. Yeah. So when he took over Jenkins, he he already knew. Yeah. He, I mean, he already had a resume. And he also uh, got a trainer by the name of Willie Ketchum. He was a pretty good trainer. Yeah. Yes. He had also, through his career, he had trained such people as uh, Jimmy Carter, Lou Salica, Sally Krieger, Ben Jebby, and of course, those three, Ben Jebby, Sally Krieger, and Lou Salica, he trained alongside the management of uh, uh, Kaplan. So they knew each other already, so they had a, a relationship, a boxing relationship. He also, uh, uh, Willie Ketchum also later in his career, trained Marcel Serdan, uh, a super featherweight by the name of Alfredo Marcano. Mm. And uh, a light welterweight by the name of Antonio Cervantes. And uh, he also had a couple of heavyweight contenders at the time, uh, Jose Luis Garcia and Thad Spencer. He had to be one of the uh, top trainers in the game at that point. Yeah. 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 He was well-respected, too. And, but, uh, I, think, I think it was a good match for... Uh, for uh, Lou, and he wasn't, you know, his, his antics weren't that bad when he first got to New York, mm -hmm. right? But uh, they they even said that Willie Ketchum had the first had the had the best name for Lou Jenkins because they said when he would break training, he had to catch him before he got away. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, it seems like that move to New York really helped to make his career Definitely. and set and set him up for that title shot yeah. um, against Lou Ambers in uh, 1940. Um, now, in your opinion, who would you say was the toughest opponent that Jenkins fought leading up to that title fight against Ambers? We were talking about before Ambers. Yeah, before Ambers, in the lead-up. Yeah, there was this, I don't, I don't know if too many people know his name, but back then there was this hard-hitting Canadian by the name of Billy Marquardt. Mm -hmm. And he, he was a well-regarded fighter. And Katie Jenkins actually had made, made the match with Billy Marquardt with uh, the then biggest promoter back then, Mike Jacobs. Oh yeah, Mike Jacobs. Right. And uh, this was the first fight that was going to be under Jaime Kaplan. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jaime Kaplan knew he was a hard-hitting fighter and he tried to stop the fight. <laughs> he wanted to, and uh, Lou, Lou Jenkins said, no, I'm, I'm going to fight him, right? And it, it didn't matter what either of them thought because Joe Jacobs held, held the contract. I'm sorry, Mike Jacobs held the contract and he intended to enforce it. Wow. And it was good for them. 
Yeah, yeah. And as I said, Katie made the the match, and she didn't get along too well with uh, Jaime Kaplan. They were always fighting. So, uh, but Kaplan told uh, Jenkins in the dressing room right before the fight, "Don't worry if you lose, because we'll just build you right back up again." Blue <laughs> Jenkins was like, "I can't believe this." He goes, "Nobody believes in me. I'm I'm the lone person that believes." <laughs> and uh, it was a furious fight. I mean. Lou Jenkins was on the verge of being knocked out. Wow. And uh, a lot of his New York fights before that, I mean, it's just the way he fought. He, he took a beating early and then and uh, started to gain momentum a little toward the middle of the rounds. But Marquardt almost had him knocked out. And, but Lincoln's, Jenkins connected with a, with a punch in the third round, and he ended up putting him down. Wow. Yep. So he won by a third-round knockout? Yep. Yeah. In fact, Billy Marquardt's manager afterward said that when Jenkins has somebody in trouble, there's nobody better mm-hmm. than him you know, at going after a guy. And they said, he said his right-hand punch reminded him of an adder striking. <laughs> a snake-like punch. Wow. That says a lot. It's very descriptive, too. <laughs> He was he was fast. I mean, even uh, I'll get to this later. Also, when I talked to his son, he Lou Jenkins told him that his opponents appeared like they were moving in slow motion. Wow! And he, you know, gave him the opening for his punch when he went drunk. <laughs> but that fight really set up another fight, which against a well-regarded New Jersey fighter by the name of Tippy Larkin. Yeah, Tippy from uh, Garfield. Right, the Garfield ghost or the Garfield gunner, he yeah. used to be called. Yep. Yeah, and Lou Jenkins knocked him out in the first round. Yeah, Tippy was a tough opponent, too. Yep. yep. And he was a champion. Yep, definitely. You're also the author of the outstanding book on Madame Bay's boxing camp that we discussed earlier. Um, please tell us more about Lou's time in camp there. Okay. The, the first the first incidents that I found that he was at the camp was not training for himself, but there was a well-known fighter there by the name of uh, Al Bummy Davis. Mm-hmm. And this was actually after Lou had won the championship from Ambers. And he had fought the welterweight. As, as a lightweight champion, Jenkins fought the welterweight champion at the time who was Fritzy Zivik. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people thought he beat him, but it ended in a draw. Hmm. So, uh, this, this guy, uh, Bummy Davis was supposed to fight Fritzy Zivik, who Lou had already fought. So he went there to just give him some advice. <laughs> I don't know how well that went over with his handlers. Yeah. Because he basically said, don't listen to them, listen to me. I fought him, I know how to do it. <laughs> And Fritzy Zivik was known for his fouling tactics. He was, he was, he was, he was rough in the ring. Dirty fighter. And yeah, I guess you, you could, you could say that. Yeah. But the only people that I know that he trained for up here at Madame Bay's in Chatham Township were two fighters not well known. He he fought these guys while he was lightweight champion. Lou, Lou Jenkins was what lightweight champion. And that was Joey Zada and a man named by man by the name of Cleo McNeil. Oh, okay. Right. But most of his big fights against uh, uh, people like Lou Ambers, Henry Armstrong, Fritzy Zivik, and Red Cochran, most of those people he fought, he trained for at Dr. Beers in Pompton Lakes where Joe Lewis oh, yeah. trained for most of his fights. Yeah. And he would also train at Greenwood Lake yeah, New Jersey, mm-hmm. New York border, and uh, also Stillman's in New York. Yeah, Stillman's in New York. Wow, that's 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 impressive. It's also impressive that he he jumped around to so many different camps, and right. he had such a successful career. Right. He fought so many world champions um, and, and contenders. Uh, had, while he was lightweight champion, he fought the welterweight champion three times. Yeah. He fought Zivic. He fought Henry Armstrong. Who was welterweight champion at the time, and also Red Cocker. Wow, 
and it was it was one draw and two losses. But you know, just as a lightweight champion, fighting a welterweight, and 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 Jenkins probably should have been a a featherweight. Yeah, his his natural weight was below one thirty five. Mm-hmm. He probably couldn't easily have lost weight. He never had to to lose weight for a lightweight fight. I re- I know all the photos I've seen of him. He seems like a smaller fighter. Right. Um, so that makes sense to me that you would say that he would be more suitable for the featherweight division than the lightweight division. And and the point you made about about him not having to lose weight for fights. <laughs> People even back then wrote, where his punching power comes from, we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> he was so skinny, and, but he just, I guess he had those quick reflexes. Yeah. That, that's what his son said. He had his quick reflexes, and he said, his son said that... Uh, he could see those reflexes passed on to his kids. Mm-hmm. Wow. The book deals heavily with not only boxing, but the military life of Jenkins. Many listeners probably don't realize he was a decorated veteran. Uh, please tell us more about his time in the military. Yeah, you, Mil, Lou loved the military. Mm-hmm. You, you could get that by, you know, uh, reading articles way back when he was in the service. And it gave him dif- discipline. And unlike boxing, he did everything right in the military. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't go through the antics he did during boxing. And as I said before, he joined the Army at the age of 19 for the first time. Uh, but after leaving the Army, he went through his boxing career. And right before World War II, he lost his lightweight title uh, and uh, he, he would end up joining World War II but he didn't he didn't join his beloved army yeah he joined the Coast Guard oh he was a two service veteran <laughs> so, uh, so now he was in the US Co- Coast Guard but while he was in the Coast Guard uh, Maybe an interesting fact. It's not military. It kind of ties in the military. Yeah. But yeah, please. While he was, while he joined the uh, the uh, Coast Guard, he went into Jack Dempsey's restaurant one time, and Jack Dempsey was there, and Jack Dempsey threw a punch in Florida, knocked him out cold, <laughs> and soon after everybody found out why, Jack Dempsey sued his wife for divorce, naming Lou Jenkins and another person as uh, accusing his wife of having an affair. Oh. It takes some guts to have an affair with Jack Dempsey. Yeah, to walk into his bar afterwards. (laughs) So there was a whole trial that went through. uh, Lou Jenkins never made an appearance because he was in the Coast Guard at the time. Yeah. And, and Jack Dempsey also in the Coast Guard. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they both were Coast Guard. Right. right. Wow. So, so he he was. Uh, they wanted him to show up for the trial, but basically the Coast Guard said he can't. Yeah. He's been deployed. <laughs> it's probably better that he was deployed. Uh, <laughs> so he he took in the Coast Guard. He. Uh, he piloted these, uh, they called them LSTs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's short for landing ship tank. Mm-hmm. And those are those big uh, transports. They would carry large amounts of troops, tanks, uh, armed okay. personnel carriers. He also uh, manned these smaller crafts that probably people are more familiar with that have seen the D-Day invasions. They're called the LCVPs. They're also nicknamed the Higgins. Oh, yeah. And those are the ones, if you ever look at the D-Day battles, that, you know, the, the ships that hit the shore that the front opens up on mm-hmm. and the troops run out. Oh, yeah. So he 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 deployed troops in probably almost all the major battles in World War II, including Tunisia, North Africa, uh, Gila, Calcutta. Wow. Palermo, Battle of Sicily, Burma, Salerno, and uh, finally Normandy on D-Day. He landed 
he wanted to land his Texas troops in uh, Normandy, <laughs> but they gave him the assignment of uh, hang, uh, landing British troops. Oh, so he was with the Brits. And the, and the British, he didn't want to do it. You know, he, he, well, not that he didn't want to do it. He wanted to land his American troops, not his uh, yeah. British troops. And But Britain gave him a citation for his bravery for landing troops there. Wow. So he's decorated by Britain also. And it had a profound effect on him mm-hmm. because he was landing these guys on these shores and he said he would land them and see them get shot before they reached the shore. Oh, yeah. And uh, it just had a profound effect on him. He uh, couldn't reconcile, even though he was going through a lot. I mean, he was being shot at. Mm-hmm. I, I, there was an instance where he was strafed by bullets by uh, German, German, uh, uh, probably German Luftwaffe, they mm-hmm. called back then. And he would man a 20 millimeter, uh, 20 millimeter machine gun to shoot at him. But uh, he, he couldn't compare what he was doing to what these army soldiers were doing. Oh. And he said he felt ashamed doing it. And even though everybody recognized his bravery, he felt he was cowardly for not fighting alongside them. Hmm. So he, he, even before the war ended, he said if he ever got an opportunity to become a frontline soldier, he was going to do it. Wow. And even when I talked to a person, which I'll get into later, Ronald E. Rosser, who's a Medal of Honor recipient during the Korean War. He told me the same thing that Lee Jenkins told him. He couldn't live with himself if he didn't join the Army and fight in the Korean War. So that's ultimately what led him to serve in the Army during the Korean War. Yes. Wow. Just his... I think he was just... It it was something that ate at him. Yeah. From World War II to Korea. Mm-hmm. His, his whole life. In fact, during the Cold War in 1946, mm-hmm. he joined the peacetime army because he thought we were going to war with Russia at the time. Oh, and he that's was interesting. Ready to fight. So he came into the army before the Korean War even kicked off in the 50s. He, he, in 1946, he joined oh, yeah. the army. But uh, after a couple of years, he was honorably discharged. Oh, okay, so then he re-enlisted again. Right, later when the mm. Korean War came around. So, uh, but interesting thing, just go back to World War II for a second. Is mm-hmm. While he was on one of these ships, LSTs, uh, the Hall of Fame boxing writer, uh, W.C. Hines, Yeah, he was on a ship next to him. As a soldier? As a war correspondent. Oh, as a war correspondent. Very interesting. And uh, somebody told W.C. Hines that, uh, hey, you know who's on the other LST over here? (laughs) He goes, no, he goes, the lightweight champ, Lou Jenkins. (laughs) So he he went over to the show. It shows uh, the boxing world has always been a very small place, and it continues to be so today. It's a very small world, I should say. (laughs) So he actually interviewed him on the ship off the coast of France. That's cool. And uh, and you could see by the interview that, you know, how ashamed he was of, you know, landing the troops and not fighting alongside of them. And he also at the time criticized other fighters for not, you know, he said a lot of fighters would get ailments that would prevent him from being... Oh. Going into the army, but it wouldn't prevent him from boxing. Yeah, yeah. And he specifically pointed out Joe Lewis, who was at at the time Joe Lewis was Lou, Lou Jenkins' hero. Yeah, yeah. He, he he admired him so much, but he didn't criticize him for not fighting, but just that they were talking more about who they were going to fight next instead of who was fighting in the war. Instead of the war effort, yeah. And he, he also criticized Billy Cobb. Oh, yeah? Who he was friends with before. I mean, I even have a picture of Lou Jenkins uh, sitting on a motorcycle with Billy Kahn on the back. Wow. Right? But he didn't like the idea of sports figures not putting in 
through time in the war and even said, my made a remark about Billy Kahn because uh, I was going to write him a letter. He told uh, Bill uh, W.C. Hines this. I was going to write him a letter, but since you're here, you could put it in the New York Sun. <laughs> tell him, tell them, tell him, pretty boy, tell pretty boy, we'll have the shores up here, safe for him to come over pretty soon. <laughs> that that says a lot. I, I'm getting this this picture of of Lou Jenkins from from stories that you're telling and whatnot. It's 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 funny. He seems like he was quite a character. He was. He was. <laughs> he, just just reading the articles about him back then and, and stuff, you know. Did so? How did his military career affect his boxing career? Well, he 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 stopped his boxing career just to join the Coast Guard mm-hmm. to go to World War Two, and uh, after World War Two, he came back over here and uh, when he was actually stateside and still in uh, still in the Coast Guard. He told his superiors he wanted to go back. Wow. And a lot of people said, uh, people wrote uh, right then and there, we knew that Jenkins was crazy. Why would somebody <laughs> want to go back to that living hell? Yeah, yeah. You know? So uh, eventually he was discharged from the from the Coast Guard after the war ended, mm-hmm. after both Germany and Japan had surrendered. And uh, he resumed his boxing career. And it started with a fight in Cleveland. Uh, but you could tell he just didn't have the punch or the power yeah. that he had before. Right. So it took him took him a little while to start getting some momentum. And uh, as I said before, in 1946, he want, he wanted to rejoin the army. Right. And an interesting story. He was he was supposed to fight Charlie Fasari mm-hmm. at the time. And they had everything lined up. It was going to be a fight in Jersey City, New Jersey. And they were going to pay him $6,000. Which is a good sum of money back then. sum of money in 1946. Yeah. And uh, he went to the recruitment office because with the Cold War going on, he thought we were going to war with Russia. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to be in the Army. And he told the recruiting officer, I got this fight lined up for $6,000. Can I join? And uh, fight the fight. And the guy, uh, recruiting officer said, no, once you're in the Army, you're in the Army. He said, why don't you fight that fight and come back afterward and join? And Luke said, no, I, I might change my mind. I want to sign up now. <laughs> <laughs> so he uh, signed up for the Army. Uh, again, he didn't... Uh, he didn't... Uh, the war didn't transpire, of course. Right. So he was honorably discharged from the army, and again, not knowing what to do, he resumed his boxing career mm-hmm. again, and uh, he started fighting. And he wasn't drunk after World War Two. He didn't fight drunk anymore. He never drank again after World War Two. Oh, completely he went completely sober. Stopped. Wow. He was on the wagon for the rest of his life. Wow. Right. He still smoked. Yeah. <laughs> he smoked a lot. He said he would smoke a half a half a pack of butts before and after fights in the dressing room. <laughs> this is over the entire span of his career. Uh, uh yes. Oh, yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so in the early years of his career, including the time he was world champion, he was smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol. Right. <laughs> he would drink. He would drink it. They they say he or I should say. Lou Jenkins said they would put whiskey in his water bottles <laughs> so he could drink between, between rounds. One guy said they were they were afraid for him. They wanted him to drink. They said they were afraid if he sobered up, he might fall flat on his face. <laughs> and, and the funny thing, Gene, is you couple that with him coming into these fights being underweight for the most part. <laughs> right? He almost always gave away weight. Yeah. He almost he the odds were almost completely against him getting into that ring, up until the point that he um, changed his ways after after the war. Right. <laughs> so after 1946, he was his last two fights were against uh, a couple of good fighters, uh, Carmen Basilio. Yeah, legend. 
And his last fight, I believe, was against Bojack. Wow. Two very good fighters. I think Carmen, when he fought Carmen Basilio, he wasn't champ. He had not won the championship at the time, but Bojack was the former lightweight champion. I think they billed it as the fight between former lightweight champions. Yeah. And it was actually televised. That was one that that would be a fight I would love to see live, just because you see two guys that know their way around the ring, and right. and they they even said that back then you could see that, you know, he early in his career he was always looking for that one right hand punch to sneak in, yeah, because he had so much power. He was probably the hardest hitting lightweight ever. In fact, a lot of people think uh, Roberto Duran was probably the hardest hitting lightweight ever, mm-hmm. and Freddie Brown, who was. Duran's trainer, who had also seen Lou Jenkins fight, when he was asked about Duran once, he said, Duran is the hardest hitting lightweight fighter I've ever seen besides Lou Jenkins. Unreal. Unreal. And, and definitely, I, I mean, that's a fighter. What? That's a hell of a fighter, too, yeah. Roberto Duran. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's got to be one of the best lightweights ever, Roberto Duran. Yeah. I mean, I know he moved up. A weight class later in his career, but early in his career, you know, he was uh, he was one of the best lightweights. Yeah, agreed, definitely. So, you want me to start getting into the Korean War now? Sure. Yeah, that, yeah. Let's talk about the Korean War, definitely. Bojack was the last professional fight he had, and he walked away from boxing before going into the army to fight in the Korean War, right? Right. Interesting story. Yeah, yeah, please. He was, after the Bojack fight, he had other fights lined up. Mm Mm-hmm. And the commission said that he didn't pass his physical. He said he had high blood pressure. (laughs) And they wouldn't wouldn't let him fight. Wow. So, think about it. You had all these fighters that were getting these ailments so they didn't have to join the military. Yeah. Or fight in the war. Luke Jenkins, they wouldn't let him fight anymore, but he, he his uh, ailments didn't uh, prevent him from joining the army again. <laughs> He's still serving the military, yeah. So he joined uh, the army for the third time. He, this is three times army enlistments and one time Coast Guard. Yep. <laughs> so uh, he, he went... Eventually, he was sent over to Korea, mm-hmm. to Busan, which was the, the port that most of the people went to at the time to be deployed. Right. And from there, he fought in two of the most fiercest battles, Bloody Ridge and Heartbreak Ridge. Wow. And he was, at the time, he was a, a sergeant. He was in charge of a George Company. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. He was in charge of a platoon in George Company. Oh, okay. Because captains usually are the are the head of the company. Right, right. So he was a platoon sergeant. So. So he was uh, in charge of a squad in George Company. Mm-hmm on Bloody Ridge and I read through the field reports that were labeled secret that were declassified in 1999 mm-hmm. and they're on the on some website called the Korean War Project oh yeah yeah and I read through all those re, all those pages that for the time span that he was in Korea and all he, he's not mentioned by name but he's George Company's mentioned quite often. Oh, okay. And uh, on Bloody Ridge, both George and Fox Fox Company were in a fierce battle with uh, both the North Koreans and the Chinese. Oh. And there was this one day where they actually split the two companies up the middle, the, uh, the North Koreans, and they had them split and they were also attacking them from both flanks. And a company is about 80 pe- people. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about 160 people. Yeah. Of uh, George and Pop's company. And they were just ambushed. 
were not ambushed, just outnumbered, I should say. Right. And they had no choice but to retreat. You can read this through a lot of the field reports. They retreated a lot just to regroup so they could make another assault. Mm -hmm. But this this was really bad because of the, the situation. And of the 160 people of both companies, only 17 people made it back. Wow. And Blue Jenkins was one of them. And I also talked to the Medal of Honor recipient, Ronald E. Rosser. Mm -hmm. And he said he was he was a forward observer, but he was attached to George Company that day. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the people that made it, made it back also. And he said that they captured a lot of the people and he said there was, they just couldn't get to them. And that uh, Rosser said they would uh, put the people out there and make them holler and then just shoot them. And, uh, it's terrible. It was terrible. And uh, even Lou Jenkins made it back with some other people to a creek, creek bottom and they were hiding in the water. And sometimes people would be exhausted, come ashore, and they'd get shot. Mm -hmm. So eventually Lee Jenkins made it out. And uh, they had a battalion of theirs, the Americans, that had basically been cut off. And they were afraid the whole, the entire battalion was gonna be uh, knocked off by the North Koreans. Mm -hmm. And Lou Jenkins put together a squad from people that remained. And also one of those people of the squad was Ronald D. Rosser, the Medal of Honor recipient. Mm -hmm. So I talked to him to corroborate all this, this stuff that I've been reading about him. So uh, Ronald D. Rosser said it was really dangerous where they were. All they had were machine guns to hold off an entire battalion just one squad, and uh, he said, as dangerous as it was where they were, it was more dangerous what Lee Jenkins did, because what he would do would, under intense enemy fire, would run to an ammo dump to get ammunition for these machine guns, and he made several trips, and he did it by himself. Wow. And Ronald E. Russell just said that, you know, it was under intense enemy fire, and he did it all by himself. And he came back and uh, with the ammunition so they could hold off this battalion and allow the American battalion to escape, which they did. So basically a, a small squad saved an entire battalion for the Americans. Unreal. And for, the, for his efforts, he was awarded a silver star for that. And one of the... Uh, officers when they were back stateside said that the only reason you didn't receive a medal of honor was because you didn't die wow one of the few survivors he was highly decorated to come home that's 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 amazing it really is and then after the korean war he walked away from the military nope no stayed in he said <laughs> he said that's it for my boxing um i'm gonna make this a career oh okay and he stayed in the army Oh, wow, so he ended up retiring. In fact, when he first came back here, of course, being Lou Jenkins, he wanted to go back to the Korean War. <laughs> he's, got that, he's got that fighter mentality in him, wanted, both in the ring and outside. He said, when he was over on stateside, he goes, he was quoted as saying, this isn't soldiering. I want to go back back to the front lines where you know my men are. Wow. But he he made the military his career until he retired in the in the sixties. Wow. I'm surprised he didn't try to uh, go to Vietnam later. <laughs> Sounds like he would have tried if he wasn't he, up there in age and retired. After the Korean War he <laughs> he was at a lot of different posts. Like yeah. He went back to Korea after the war had ended, South Korea of course. Mm -hmm. And he was also stationed in Germany. He was stationed in Hawaii. He was stationed in Texas. He was, and finally, he was stationed in California. Is that where he uh, pretty much lived out the rest of his life in California? California? Yeah. 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 Wow. 
just uh, just an unbelievable person, both in the ring and and in the military and whatnot. He just, uh, per our conversation earlier, I mean, he sounds like a character, but at the same time, he's one of these guys that you would want in a foxhole next to you. He's Um, down to earth. You know, I, I, uh, Raleigh Rosser said that uh, he was a brave soldier and and he cared for his men, and uh, that's what he was. It really sums it up, a man of the people, definitely. He quit smoking also after the Korean War. <laughs> so, so after World War II, he gave up alcohol, and after the Korean War, he gave up smoking. Gave up the vices, right? <laughs> he, it, it didn't matter during boxing, but during war, it mattered too. <laughs> so your book is scheduled to be released on November 15th of 2019. How can my listeners learn more about your book? Well, it, actually, if you go to Amazon. Mm-hmm. And uh, look, look the book up. You can actually read some of the sections of it. Oh, cool! It's already up on Amazon. Uh, you know, you the picture of the book is there, and if you click, it says "Look Inside," right? You can yeah. Click it, you'll be able to read uh, quite a few chapters. Awesome, and I'll be sure to share the link to the Amazon page with right. the interview when I get it posted on the way in. And of course, Barnes and Noble has it too, and also. It's available directly from the publisher, which is Rowan and Littlefield. That's awesome. Yeah, I personally, I'm very excited to read this book, and I'm sure many of the listeners will be excited as well, just to see the get a glimpse into the complicated life and and I would I would even say the amazing life of Lou Jenkins. He's a complicated person. Yeah, <laughs> amazing life. Is there anything else you like to say to my listeners? Yeah, you just don't judge a boxer or anyone else based on what you read or hear about them, you really have to delve into a person's past and find out where they came from to, to judge them. Uh, judge them based on how they were brought up, not on how you were brought up. Uh, I may not be anything new, but I think people just judge people at first glance and, mm-hmm. and don't really get the history behind people. They read short articles about them and if you read short articles about Lou Jenkins early in his career, you, you would you would not have the appreciation for him after looking at his whole life and what he had to go through and, and his upbringing and how he just turned his life around through the military and how he lived out the rest of his life. It's very well said, Gene. Make sure to check out Gene's feature-length stories every month on the weigh-in. From boxing... Ring to Battlefield, The Life of War Hero Lou Jenkins will be available for purchase on November 15, 2019. Gene, thank you again for joining me this morning. 2018. Oh, 2018. <laughs> the book will be available November 15, 2018. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. <laughs> I think I said it earlier, too. So I'll make sure to uh, to put it up, put up the link to the Amazon page with more information on the website, um, as well as information on your last book, on Madam Bay's Boxing Camp. Sure. And if you want, if anybody wants to buy the the, uh, book directly from the publisher, I can offer them a 30% discount. And I could give you the PDF if you want to publish that also on the website. It's up to you. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, we'll put that up with the interview as well. The more information, the better. Very cool. Gene, thank you again for joining me this morning. My pleasure. It's always a pleasure to speak with you.